Hello, this is Real Estate Insights, the podcast from Savills that's happy to take on any issue in the property world, no matter how big. And today we're looking at global living trends and what a predicted return to serious levels of migration will mean for rented accommodation around the world and for the environment. What we've seen is probably a slight shift away from big cities. Some of the cities that are showing signs of thriving are all cities that have very good transport links but also have very good connections to their suburban locations. We're used to seeing that sort of nomadic-ish lifestyle where we we can kind of pick up at the drop of a hat and move for work or for school or anything we need. The biggest decisions you make are whether to actually build something in the first place and the one before that is like do I knock down what's already there because they might be thinking I have to knock it down and do something better. That's not necessarily the case. I'm Guy Ruddle and I'm joined by three of Savile's finest, particularly when it comes to this topic. Aurelio Di Napoli is a director in the European team within the Operational Capital Markets Division at Savills. He specialises in student accommodation, multifamily and senior living around Europe. Aurelio, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Guy. Good to be here. Good to have you. Kelsey Sellers is an analyst in the Savills World Research Team with a particular expertise in cities, prime residential markets and mixed-use developments. Kelsey, welcome to Real Estate Insights. Hi, thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. And Chris Cummings is Head of Technical Sustainability and Net Zero at Savills Earth, which is a group of more than 90 ESG experts providing advice to a range of Savills clients. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Great, good. Well, let's get into this. Um, Obviously, we're going to talk about sort of different types of living and where people want to live and things like that. But let's try and set the scene, first of all. And and let's start, Aurelio, with you, perhaps, uh, on migration. Obviously, there was a big pause in people moving around the place with COVID. But can you just sort of set the scene of what was going on before COVID and what you think is going to happen now? Sure. Thanks, Guy. Um, So, look, pre-COVID, we were seeing significant numbers of people migrating and moving across the globe. That's both from a business perspective, um, but also from a living and student accommodation perspective. Um, But obviously, COVID put the brakes on that with travel sort of grinding to a halt. But we've seen now that uptick coming back very strong. And so that will play out quite significantly within the various uh, markets within the living sector. So we're already seeing that play out within the student accommodation space and, uh, and also within the living space. And Kelsey, those two things, do they sort of work together or are they sort of independent of each other, but both very important in this world? No, I think it's all completely interconnected. Like you have this movement of people and they, they all need places to live. So whether it is a worker moving for a new job, whether it's a student moving for their new university place, it's all going to be absolutely interconnected. So when we see these international migration trends tick back up, you're going to see, again, that boost in demand. Beyond that, then, the way we want to live and work and things and the combination between the two, uh, I mean, you know, we're all talking about hybrid working and everything. Is, is that a very real thing, do you think? Look, I, I think it's definitely brought it um, to everyone's attention much quicker. We're probably on a path pre-COVID uh, that was going to get us to where we are today, but it was probably going to take five to 10 years. But I think, um, you know, with, with Teams and Zoom, et cetera, it's, it's all made it a lot more possible to, to have this hybrid living. And from, look, from an investor's perspective and from the markets that, uh, that we cover, we are seeing some developers looking to fulfill some of that gap. Traditionally, they may have been looking for residential 
opportunities within sort of CBD centres, but now they're looking a bit further afield where young families will be in those sort of suburban locations and looking to provide high-quality um, residential product that, uh, that can fit that hybrid type of working. And Chris, then we get on to your big area, which is sustainability, ESG, carbon and everything. How much do people care, really care, about whether they are living in a, you know, an ecologically sound building uh, or in a sustainable way? I mean, really, when you get down to it. On an individual basis, I guess people are becoming, that, that education is rising at a, a spike. You know, it, in climate change, as climate scientists, we love a big hockey stick curve. And that public awareness over the last 18 months is one of the best kind of hockey sticks you could hope to see. So it, it's escalating, whether it's filtering down into their decisions. It depends what kind of stage of life you're in. As an example, we get interrogated by our graduate intake as to our own ESG credentials and what we're doing, what we're pushing before they'll even talk to us about coming in. And that's something that we've seen as a real shift. So I have to say, the younger you are, the more you are likely to make this a big decision. And you're also a little bit more fluid in about where you live. You don't, you, you know, haven't got a, a property that you own outright somewhere in the country. You're, you're flexible and floatable. And that means you're, you're much more likely to factor it in, I think. Yeah, and that's interesting because, of course, we are very much talking about rented accommodation here. So that's likely to be slightly younger people, Kelsey? I would say so. I mean, we we talk about millennials and the big thing is that the oldest millennials are turning 40 this year. So it's not necessarily, you know, the kids in your front garden who are messing up your lawn. It is your slightly younger neighbour who also has children complaining about the children on their lawn. So... Yeah, it is. But these millennials are really looking for this rented accommodation because that's that's what we've grown up with. We're used to seeing that sort of nomadic ish lifestyle where we we can kind of pick up at the drop of a hat and move for work or for school or anything we need. I'm not going to take offence at you saying millennials are hitting 40 in amazement, <laughs> just, just, just so as you know. OK, all right. You know, we're all aware of that. Uh, students migration, is that going to, you know, is that going to go back to the way it was before COVID? Or, or are people, are students going to perhaps not travel so much or, or not go so far? Or, or what do you think is going to happen? So I don't think you're going to see a real decline in student migration numbers. I think we we will see a bit of a slowdown, especially while we still have these like travel restrictions in place. But you will see a tick back up in student numbers. You're already seeing it in some of the visa processing data from either the US, the UK or Australia, where they're, they're processing that backlog of student visa applications. People are starting to move again. University places are ticking back up. So we're going to have maybe a bit of a bumpy next couple 18 months um but it's gonna it's gonna come back what's been really interesting is actually the domestic market has uh, sort of filled a lot of that gap where previously we did have a lot of international students coming coming through and uh, and as kelsey mentioned you know at once travel restrictions are eased we will see the international student come back i mean we have seen it in in parts um it's just that they've moved to different countries. So for example, we've seen a lot of Chinese students actually going to the Nordics and Ireland. Um, and we've seen also just general migration of students within Europe, where perhaps they would have stayed on their home turf. Where were the Chinese students going before? To the UK and uh, to Germany. So they've sort of just shifted a little bit to where they were able to travel and, and also where COVID was perceived to be less of an impact. So Nordic was a, was a benefactor of, of that market and, and Ireland. 
So that sort of sets the scene of, of where we are and everything. And I should say that we, one of the reasons we're talking about this right now is because it's tied to the part two of the Savile's Global Living uh, report for 2021, something I've, I've come to love over the last few years. And one of the things I, I really like about it is this sort of ranking of cities and the idea that some cities are on the rise and, and some are, are, are less so. Uh, Aurelia, the without spending the next 20 minutes talking about all the different parts of the world and everything, are, are the sort of overall themes of, of the types of city which are likely to thrive in this environment, do you think? I think what we've seen is probably a shift, slight shift away from, from big cities. So I think some of the cities that are showing signs of thriving, you know, are cities like, uh, you know, Madrid and Vienna and Stockholm, uh, Copenhagen, all, all cities that have very good transport links, but also have very good connections to their suburban uh, locations. So we've seen a slight shift in those. So I think they will they will benefit. There really is, especially in North America and Europe, that shift to like the smaller cities. In the US, you're seeing a shift really from that rust belt to the sun belt, where people are moving to these lower cost of living, better winters sort of environments. Um, it's the same in Europe where you have those higher quality of life cities that are a bit smaller, but you get more space, more value for your money. However, there is a different trend that we are seeing in a lot of the Asian cities. So you're actually still seeing those mega cities being a big draw for people because that's where the centers of employment are. So it's it's a tale of two cities almost, I would say. <laughs> Very good, yeah. Chris, do you think there's a quality of living element in your area of this? And there are there's cities which are you know, fundamentally cleaner, you know, easier to get around, less pollution and things like that. Are, are, are people actively looking to move to those sorts of cities? Yeah, definitely. I think people are very much more aware of the impact of green spaces of biophilia on their life. But it, COVID gave everyone a bit of pause for thought. And actually, people took time to take stock on these things that they never would have done before. It was in an enforced manner. Uh, and that kind of I'd say people are flooding back to the cities and, I think, and people are flooding back to communities. Mm -hmm. And I think that where, where those are and how those exist is changing and maybe a little bit different. And, you know, in sustainability, we always talk about the 15 minute city and creating those hubs. But that's just a village. You know, if, as long as you've got somewhere where you can walk to the shops, walk to the doctors, walk to the dentist, drop the kids off at school without having to jump in a car, you've got successful urban planning. Now, London grew up as being a big collection of villages, not grew up as a city. And if you still think of it like that, you know, I live in Camberwell Village, if you think about it, rather than the city of London. And that's what people are flooding back to. And that's where you get a bigger impact in terms of health and well-being and air quality and the, the reducing transport impacts. So definitely. Kelsey, you're nodding. I mean, we during the pandemic, we did, you know, buyer sentiment surveys. We were asking people, what is it that you're looking for? And it has always been that drive to green space, that more additional either private gardens, access to a park. So you're going to see that green space, that sort of flight to quality, really being a key driver for people in the, the rented accommodation space. Like you want to be able to not, maybe not necessarily have your own garden in your flat, but be able to get to a park or something like that. I suppose the key question is, are investors and developers and the like in this area actually both conscious of this and doing something about it? Absolutely. I have to say in many of the discussions that I'm having with developers and investors, uh, you know, quality of life, ESG credentials and, and how they're looking to deliver their projects is, is absolutely front of mind. Um, I mean, COVID really did bring that into the frame. Pre-COVID, 
it was kind of a discussion that we were having, but but now it's it's very very much key. I mean, there's there is a number of funds that have been raised uh, in recent years that are very much focused on you know the ESG component of of, of those developments, uh, and also factoring in sort of modern methods of construction. So it's it's very much uh, at the forefront. Yeah, because it's easy in a way, I guess, to say, oh, we'll, we'll you know ESG on you know we're going to heat buildings in a different way or we're going to you know do all sorts of nice things in our building but it's a building you know it's already a, a lot a lot of cases because it's already been built yeah a lot of the damage has already been done at that point um yeah. you know the biggest decisions you make are whether to actually build something in the first place and the one before that is like do i knock down what's already there so that that hierarchy of thinking is really what's coming back into especially the development market where people are going, being forced to and to consider right okay what do i do with this site what's my first thought because they might be thinking i have to knock it down and do something better that's not necessarily the case i mean you're seeing a huge trend in repurposing buildings so maybe not necessarily knocking it down but finding a way to kind of revitalize revamp something that historically would have been knocked down or a brownfield site and bringing new life into different parts of these cities is it that big a trend though i mean i'm forever seeing you know, perf- what look like perfectly decent buildings being knocked down so they can build something else. I think it's definitely a global trend. Like you see it in the United States where there's just massive greenfield developments it used to be. But with the shift towards more either transit-oriented development or just people wanting to move in closer to the city, you're seeing some of these like old warehouses or um, just old anything really being turned into either offices accommodation some sort of mixed-use development everything yeah a lot, i mean these london's a good example the amount of industrial and kind of brownfield sites that are in town as well so a lot of the city is peppered with retail that doesn't need to be retail anymore warehouses that don't need to be warehouses anymore you know there's a lot of old industrial stuff there that actually make very trendy apartments or have a, a different use of something else in a new life but if you don't do anything with those then they're just holes in the city so that kind of urban dentistry thing where you go and pick these things apart and refill in where you need to be is going to be really important because you need to rebuild the communities not just the bricks and mortar that are in there chris can i can I ask you about something that Aurelio mentioned earlier, which uh, a few minutes ago, which is modern methods of construction? We do hear about this quite a lot, but what actually are they? <laughs> um, modern methods of construction has become a, a catch-all phrase for basically off-site prefabrication. Now, that can be a component of a building, you know, a bathroom pod that comes in ready-made. It can be a whole apartment. It can be packaged plant. Uh, anything that where you've done a lot of the workmanship in a factory somewhere and then delivered a product to site and then bolted it together like, like massive Lego. Um, what that does is it is really, really much, much more efficient to manufacture those things in a factory. You have less of an impact on air quality. You can save so much in terms of materials and material cost and pollution, save so much time on site to actually get it there. But it's effectively prefabricated buildings. Uh, it, so it brings a, an enormous benefit in terms of material because of material use that you've got, enormous benefits in terms of site impacts, but also you can get a better build quality. So if you're trying to build really nice airtight buildings that are well insulated, they need to have be such a high build quality that it's tough to achieve on site. So you bring an operational saving as well as an embodied saving. So they're good news. They're, they're a good, they're a component of the story um, but they also translate really well to kind of hotels student resi any of that kind of modularized building construction yeah and Aurelio do we have sort of firm evidence that that, that there is a move in that direction absolutely guy um, in fact we we've been advising a developer on a project in greater London which is embarking on modern methods of construction and that is sort of a, a modular type build of 33 story uh, built to rent scheme 
And uh, the capital that's going into that is purely looking to back developers that are engaging in modern methods of construction. And through that process, um, you know, we've discussed this project with with valuers, and valuers are suggesting that you know there will be a premium to that asset because of the amount of capital that is interested in that finished product. Really, on the the smaller cities thing, is that something that you you actually see investors thinking about a lot? Because a lot of them have got lots of investments in big cities, I guess. Are they actively moving money away from that to Zurich, you know, Geneva, uh, Copenhagen, etc.? Yeah, look, I think the the theme with the capital looking to go to some of these smaller cities is actually more on the affordable theme. So there are there is capital um, out there that's looking to invest into product that's deemed to be affordable, which generally has a has a cap of forty percent of uh, of one's uh, average salary, and so that's what's driving uh, a lot of um, the capital into these sort of smaller cities. So it's it's definitely happening, and as uh, as Chris mentioned, you know, quality of life as well, um, mobility, etc. So it's it's definitely happening, and, and the, the capital's demanding it. Sort of slightly randomly, one one thing that that that, that occurs to me is that. You know, we talk about Chinese students not coming to London so much or, or students in Europe, moving around Europe and everyone moving to smaller cities. Uh, we're doing this from London. You know, is London in trouble? London is one of the, it is a global capital. You are always going to have people coming to London, either for work, for study, regardless of what it is. And as Chris saying, London is not really a city. It's a collection of villages that have all kind of grown together. So you still get that sort of smaller city feel within a city of like 8 million people. It's also one of the greenest cities in the world. It the is. number of parks and actual green mm-hmm. space that we have is phenomenally it's high. fantastic. Um, you know, London's been through a lot worse than the last 18 months. It'll be fine. Now, we can't go without doing our new feature. We used to have do a thing called Savile Standout Stat, but we've, we've moved on from that to, uh, to a feature called Tell Me Something I Don't Know. So it sort of broadens it out. I, was, I think you've all been warned that you've got to tell me something I don't know. It doesn't have to be long. It just be a little nugget of information, a thought or an idea or something. Uh, who wants to go first? Why don't we, Aurelia, why don't we start with you? Tell me something I don't know. So going on the theme of, of ESG and capital, I can tell you that uh, since 2019, $90 billion has been raised uh, to target assets of uh, an ESG focus. And 33 billion of that is uh, focused for Europe. Wow. That's billions, ladies and gentlemen. Not millions, billions. Uh, Who wants to go next? Uh, Kelsey, tell me something I don't know. I think going back to that sort of migration trend that's really feeding through a lot of what we've been talking about here, I just want to note that over 281 million people are living outside of their country of origin, which is about 3.5% of the global population. And that's doubled since 2000, and I think it's going to continue to grow, even with all of the effects that you've seen from the pandemic. I'm loving this. I'm learning stuff every second of every day. Chris, tell me something (laughs) I I don't know. I'm wishing I'd done my homework. Um, (laughs) I think... Well, something probably, Dan, we talked a bit about embodied carbon and the impact that that has. You know, we're we're hearing a lot about drives towards energy efficiency and legislation about making things more energy efficient. If you built a big steel and glass tower in central London right now, the whole life carbon impact of that from how you operate it is going to be less than 1%. The rest of that is down to what you've done with the materials that put it there in the first place. And that's the bit that no one's focusing on or regulated. So that's how big the challenge is. Yeah. 
Uh, thank you all very much for that. That's uh, That's been most enjoyable, at least from my point of view. Um, thanks for your time and thank you for your wisdom. That's it for this episode of Real Estate Insights. If you want to delve deeper into this topic, there's plenty more on the research section of the Savills website, savills.co.uk slash research. You'll find the Global Living Report 2021 Part 2 there. And of course, the Part 1 of the Global Living Report 2021, which looked at the resilience of operational real estate throughout, throughout the pandemic, the evolution of global cities and the social impact of operational real estate. So plenty to get your teeth into there. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening and see you next time. This podcast is for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. Savills accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect or consequential loss arising from the use of, reference to or reliance on this podcast or its content. Savills makes no warranty as to the accuracy of the information in this podcast. This podcast and all copyright in this podcast is the property of Savills and it shall not be used, reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without Savills' prior written consent.